The world has changed. I can feel it in the water. I can feel it in the earth. I can smell it in the air. Much that once was has been lost because none now live that can remember. Except for us on the deep dive. Welcome! Woohoo! <laughs> what, what was that quote? That's, Where's that quote from? That quote's the, the first line from the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, that's the first line? Okay. That's the first line. It's spoken by Galadriel in the, in the movies. In the books, it was spoken by Treebeard later on. It wasn't the first lines in the book. Well, excellent. Well, in, in the movies, that's Well, a fitting starts. intro then to the Tolkien episode. Absolutely. So, Colin, we, we talked with uh, our guest, Corey Olson. Why don't you just give a little bio before we uh, start the interview? Absolutely. Corey Olson so, is. I, as many people know, I'm a big geek. and uh, I do know that. You do know I that, I do, yeah. that's apparent to all of us. Yep. <laughs> and Tolkien is uh, my favorite author. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's like there's the Bible as, as the best book ever, and then anything Tolkien wrote, High praise. that's how it, how it goes for me. Okay. Uh, so I've listened to lots of uh, Tolkien podcasts, and uh, his is one of my favorites, uh, The Tolkien Professor. That's how I first heard about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gave some lectures about uh, explaining The Hobbit, uh, and and or include some lectures about the Silmarillion and other books by Tolkien. Uh, that's how I first uh, came across him. Uh, so so Corey Olson is a professor. He has served as a, a professor of English uh, in several schools uh, in the States. Uh, but right now he's doing something rather interesting, uh, something called uh, Signum Academy, Signum University, mm-hmm. which is like an online uh you know, post-secondary school. Uh, they have a master's course in English and literature, uh, but are creating more and more courses and more and more things. And this happened way before the pandemic. You know, nowadays we're all used to doing Zoom and, and conferences. Yeah, since 2012, kind of he was thing. really ahead of the curve. But yeah, he did. It, he started it way back in 2012. And you can get a bunch of his lectures and classes on... Uh, speculative fiction stuff, but especially Tolkien. Uh, and I've really loved his stuff. Uh, the way that he uh, can bring out the meaning of Lewis and Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought he would be the perfect guest for us to have as we've been talking about how that uh, that idea of the, the truth of, of God coming through in myth and such. Absolutely. And we got a we got a podcast coming on Lewis. So we wanted to talk to this guy. He is he is not only a, a Tolkien expert, but really all of Middle English. He he knows a lot about, you know, the Canterbury tales and that's uh, right. Like he can speak in Thomas old English Mallory. and so he's the real deal. And yes. he really thinks that Tolkien, like you just said, he believes Tolkien is one of the great writers of of literature uh, of all time, he believes he should be in that category. So we talked with him in this podcast about some of the Christian themes. It turns Corey Olson is a Christian himself. Yeah. I mean, Tolkien's a wide enough uh, uh, kind of fan base, has a wide enough fan base that he doesn't always make it purely about that. But uh, he enjoyed talking to us because it was this chance for him to kind of talk about some of the Christian themes or Catholic sort of um, motifs that you find in Tolkien. Absolutely. So we talked to him and unpacked that. And uh, and so here's our interview with uh, Corey Olson. Hope you enjoy. Yeah. 
So um, thanks everyone for for coming uh, to be in part of our our podcast for today. I'm Colin. This is my buddy Ben. Say hello to the people, Ben. Hello. Good and, to see everybody. Um, we're super excited to uh, bring this uh, podcast to you because I have um, one of one of my geek mentors, although we've just met, but uh, one of my geek mentors, uh, Corey Olson, um, is here with us. He's a professor in English literature, and he is the Tolkien professor. Uh, right, Corey? That's that's your one your main podcast that you got started with. Yeah, that's right. Though I I have gotten uh, uh, no limit of grief over the years about the definite article. You know, like, uh, there <laughs> there are several other Tolkien scholars who tease me about it every time I see them. They're like, "Oh, look, it's <laughs> the Tolkien professor." <laughs> and so I'm like, addition- you know, and yeah. it was just a URL to start with. It was really just a, I didn't think it would catch on that way, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, You know something, Professor Olsen, I wanted to ask you that right off the bat, because that must be a pretty sought after title. I mean, the professor of Tolkien, I mean, is this a competitive arena that you're in or what? There must be quite a few well, people. Yeah, I mean, there are, again, that's why, you know, some of them are, and they're all very polite about it. Um, you know, they, they understand about, uh, you know, <laughs> the need for online branding but uh no originally it was it was not really a design on my part to claim some kind of seat of preeminence like that wasn't <laughs> what i had in mind it was just i was like well I, i'm gonna do a podcast it's gonna be on tolkien so i want to make sure people know that and like i'm a professor and i'm pretty much gonna be lecturing so i feel like that you know like there, there needs to be a warning like right on the label you know that that's what's going to be happening so if you're not into that like you know this might not be what you want so I'm like, okay, the Tolkien professor, sure. And I get, I, I did not even think through the implications of the definite article there, but it just kind of happened, and I've been living with it for ten years. <laughs> uh, that's excellent, and I've I've really appreciated the the way uh, you've been digging into uh, Tolkien and Lewis. Um, I've just started your Out of the Silent Planet uh, uh, lectures, um, and. Um, and, and just to see, like, it's not every day that I, I listen to a podcast um, about fantasy literature where I hear someone really talk about meaning and 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 where I hear someone making biblical references as well as you do. Um, not that I know that your uh, podcast isn't a Christian one, but I just found that really refreshing. Um, and uh, yeah, just bringing out the meaning in, in things I, I thought was made you a, a a natural choice for us to say hey if we want to talk about Tolkien and Lewis you'd be the guy we would like to talk to no it's 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 so much fun to do and um yeah I, i've so i mean i'm a christian myself i've been a christian my whole life and it's one of the things that i've been working to do both in my podcast and at signum of course signum is you know it's not we're not religiously affiliated um i've worked really hard to keep that uh independent because we want to be open to everybody is the is you know the 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 primary goal there and and thus far we've really succeeded very well in that but yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hide from the stuff that's there i mean with lewis and tolkien you know you can't really avoid that you shouldn't really if you if, if you're avoiding the christian stuff you're doing it wrong um but uh, so i mean i do want to uh, I, I mean i always do want to want to talk about that you know i don't i i you know trying to go into it trying to you know grind a christian axe or something um but you know when it's there we'll definitely talk about it and there's always um uh there's always enough 
uh, folks who are really interested in the Christian side of things during the live sessions that usually I have to kind of <laughs> rein it in uh, rather than you know needing to try to encourage it. It definitely nice. uh, is is stuff that is stuff that that pretty naturally comes out. But yeah, as far as meaning, I mean that's the um, that's the fun thing, right? I mean it's 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 not about and this actually I learned from Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, one of his, uh, uh, one of his quote, it's, it, I believe this is from his essay on criticism, um, where he, it kind of changed my life at one point. I used to, when I was in grad school, uh, undergrad and grad school, I used to be like hugely resistant to the, you know, uh, uh, critical theory, ideas you know people are always talking about the death of the author and even when i was in grad school that was an old concept of course but uh but still like you know the idea of uh as you say like finding meaning in a text was a long since outdated idea right um and i was resistant against that right but i didn't exactly know what i was opposing in a sense like I, you know so I, I knew i was opposed to like the kind of postmodernist relativist stuff that was going on in graduate school um but the 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 kind of the thing that i would focus on i was like okay no this the author isn't actually dead, right? Like, you know, there is something here and I'm not going to just treat it like it's mine to do with however I want. Like, you know, that's, that's just, that's not, doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't do that when I'm talking to a person. I, why should I do that when I'm reading a book? Um, but the thing that, um, the thing that Lewis said, which changed my life was he said, authors intend books mean. Like authors have intentions, book have books have meaning um and the disconnection between those things and it was Tolkien, and and so like you know lewis said that and then tolkien showed me what it meant basically as i went through and this actually it's been the Mythgard academy series as we've been going through the history of middle earth series um uh looking at the growth and development of tolkien of tolkien's um uh whole you know mythology and stories over time right and watching how the meaning of his books emerged, right? Often beyond his control, beyond his expectation. I mean, he had no idea. When he got to Rivendell, he really believed the Lord of the Rings was halfway done. He was like, that was the, the, the middle point. And from there, it was just, you know, the, the, the jaunt to Mordor from Rivendell. And, and, you know, he was halfway, he had no idea what was going on in like, what was to come in that book. You know, he didn't even know about Sauron. I mean, he knew, he had Sauron kind of as a pre-existing character, but um, he didn't know about like the Lord of the Rings and the ring wraiths and everything until one literally showed up. I mean, there's that awesome moment when the Black Rider, you know, when um, Frodo and Sam and Pippin are walking down the road and then they ditch off to the side of the road uh, when they hear the horse coming because they think it might be Gandalf. And so they're gonna, they're gonna like scare him or something, right, as a joke. Um, and then it turns out to be the Black Rider and, and it's just really like spooky, intimidating moment. Um, what, when you look at the, the drafts, like you, you can see this in uh, The Return of the Shadow, volume six of the History of Middle-earth. Um, when Tolkien first wrote that passage, it was Gandalf. Like he wrote a version where like, then, like, then they saw a white horse come around the corner and it was Gandalf. Even the sniffing, like you remember the Black Rider sniffs for them and it's really creepy. Yes. It was Gandalf sniffing actually. Like he detected them by scent in that, in that Gandalf did in that first draft, right? But then 
immediately after writing one paragraph, he goes back and he crosses out the word white and he writes the word black. It was a black horse that came around the corner. And he had no idea. Like, and then he describes this black figure. Tolkien did not know what the black figure on the black horse was, except that it was apparently really scary, right? And then he figured it all out. So again, the way that the whole story like unfolds, he had no idea where he was going or what he was doing. This was not a question of like, the author's intention, in a sense, it was what me, what the author was discovering and the way in which you see that like, okay, so not only is the intention of the author different from the meaning of a book, but the meaning is something that actually emerges can it often can be and I think in the in the best book so it usually is not completely under the control of the author and what's more is in a kind of uh, there's a kind of partnership with the reader right I mean like the reader is involved in finding that meaning and there can be you know you can find things that you know that can have really deep meaning for you there's so many times I've talked to Tolkien fans who are deeply moved or have been really you know their lives have been transformed by a particular passage of the Lord of the Rings and I'm like I never thought about that passage that way that never had that meaning to me right but that's really cool to hear the way that that has been kind of mediated to you and the way that that's had an impact in your life and so just seeing the depth of the ways in which, you know, meaning comes across and, you know, in which, you know, frankly, in which God can speak to people through these things in so many different ways. It's, uh, it's been just kind of an incredible discovery for me to sort of watch that. And so anyway, so, you know, if, if, if I, I can sort of, I, you know, by sharing what I see, you know, and what really speaks to me in these texts and the kind of patterns that I see and what seems to be happening, um, being able to kind of tee that up for folks and help them to sort of see and, and understand some stuff is, uh, that's what's just, it's, it's so rewarding. And these, you know, Lewis and Tolkien both are just, uh, you know, their, their works are almost bottomless when it comes to this kind of impact. Definitely. I, this is, uh, this is a great uh, starting point here because we've been, we've been really interested in talking about this idea of mythology in both mm. Lewis and Tolkien and, yes. and how I, sometimes I think, you know, a lot of Christians are, are wary of the word mythology yes. because we think yes. of it as something that is, you know, not true. It's fictional. It's not rooted in yes. history or something, but your work on Tolkien has really tried to focus on there's there's something really important, a goal, if you will, at at the end of kind of what he's trying to do with Lord of the Rings, and I'm and I'm curious as well because I know that I know that Lewis and Tolkien had this relationship. They were part of the Inklings, mm -hmm. right? They were friends, and they would write and talk. But my understanding is that Tolkien Tolkien didn't really like Lewis's uh, allegorical way of doing things. So. so yeah, yeah, I wonder if you could just yeah. talk about, you know, mythology and its purpose for Tolkien, how maybe that was that was uh, different than Lewis's, why he was a little bit critical of going so hardcore Christian with, mm, the, right. with the motifs right. and themes there. Well, in large part, I think that was mostly a difference in temperament between the two of them. Like they were very, very different personalities, Lewis and Tolkien were. And uh, I mean, there were obviously lots of things they had in common uh, and they were good friends, but they were very, very different people. Um, and uh, so Tolkien's discomfort uh, with Lewis, and I'll try to remember to circle back to mythology, but Tolkien's discomfort with, especially with Narnia. Well, okay, so 
there are a couple factors here to keep in mind. Number one, um, and I just to kind of get this out of the way at first, sure. Tolkien disliked Narnia because of the way that Lewis's mind worked so differently. Tolkien was like way more OCD than Lewis. Like Lewis was really free and easy and kind of didn't care. Um, Narnia drove Tolkien bananas because it's so chaotic, right? I mean, he reads The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? He starts reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he's like, okay, so there's a magic wardrobe. That's cool. And then there's, we're, then there's a fawn, right? There's a Greek fawn and there's a Norse dwarf and there's a, a witch, right? From who knows what that's from. And then bloody Santa Claus comes in. Like, are you kidding me? What's even happening here? Pick a, pick a lane, Lewis. Pick a lane. Yeah, exactly. He was like, this is, I can't even with this, right? You right. know, like it just drove him crazy. He couldn't stand that. Um, and it's, I, I've always actually considered that kind of ironic, even kind of tragic, uh, because I think that what Lewis is doing in Narnia and especially in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe actually like before Lewis does pick a lane like eventually Narnia kind of settles down. I mean it always has those different elements and stuff uh, at its origins but it kind of does settle down into uh, it's uh, the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is way more eclectic than like most of the rest of right. the uh, of, of the books are you know he's not really established the world of Narnia yet right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um uh in in you know in the early parts of the line which the wardrobe um so but and what you can see there is the way like myth is what he's primarily interested in right i mean this is right. uh what they're coming in contact like narnia is like the world which is like the reality behind mythic stories in our world right um and you can even see ways in which they've been turned so like even one of the things that annoyed Tolkien. Uh, he was not only annoyed, uh, offended isn't quite the right word. Scandalized might be the right word. <laughs> the whole Mr. Tumnus thing, right? Because right. I mean, <laughs> Mr. Tumnus's bookshelf, you know, the books about like uh, nymphs and their ways and like a, there is a long robust history of course in Greek mythology about fawns kidnapping girls but they don't give them tea parties if you know what i mean i mean it's like you know so he's like lewis is invoking this like really sort of sketchy thing and and converting it right sort of twisting right. it around um and making it so that, and, and basically what what we're able to see is that like so all those greek myths about you know fawns like kidnapping and raping mortal girls um those are just like warped and twisted versions mm. of the reality that's actually out there right now of nice. course mr tumnus does kidnap lucy with bad intentions right so again right. even that's not totally wrong like it's you know if, if you uh, if you took away from greek mythology that fawns are not to be trusted you wouldn't be wrong when you met Mr. Tumnus, right? Not for the right reasons and not in the right way. Anyway, so like the way that Lewis is playing with that stuff is really, really interesting. But Tolkien was just like, he, he couldn't handle it. Like his right. mind was just blown and he couldn't handle it's it. But as far as the Christian teaching is concerned, yeah, it wasn't exactly the allegorical method. A lot of people, and for, okay, another little sidelight. Lewis isn't exactly doing allegory. Um, right. And I, I've gotten in trouble so many times. Oh my goodness. Like I get in trouble with my own parents if I say that Lewis is not writing allegory. Cause when I say, like the, when I, if I say 
the 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 chronicles of narnia is not an allegory to christians they almost all what they hear is there is no christian story that's actually being told and i'm like no 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 that's not what i'm saying like yeah of course there is it's just not like it's that's not the method it's not an allegory because if, if it were an allegory like really an allegory and lewis can do allegory and he does allegory and in, in Sure. The Pilgrim's Regress. You want to read his allegory, read The Pilgrim's Regress. That's allegory, right? All the way through. Um, but that's not, and that's not what he's doing in Narnia. I mean, the, yes, I mean, you can say like, okay, so Aslan is Jesus and, and the witch is Satan, kind of, but she's not exactly, it already starts to break down. She's not exactly Satan, but yeah. she's like Satan in a lot of ways. And then what? What is Edmund? The human soul, right. you know, and if Edmund is that, what's Susan? You know, what's Mr. Beaver? Like, it's not an allegory. It breaks down. It doesn't work as an allegory in that can way. I, can I jump in? I, was that ever a thing for Tolkien? Was that was that a criticism in a way? Because it does seem, you're right, it's like Lewis has all these connections, but they're not quite there. But it's almost, it's just so overt in one sense. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yet, and yet it doesn't all square. It, was that ever something Tolkien was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, in, yeah, in some ways, again, I do think that it's, it is a testimony to Lewis's uh, more free and easy uh, approach, you know, to right. this kind of writing and this kind yeah. of teaching. Uh, in some ways that, yeah, I mean, in some ways, Tolkien might almost have been more comfortable if it had been a consistent allegory, because then at least right. it would have been something, right? It would have been some kind of consistent <laughs> system. Um, but yeah, like the, the, the connection between Aslan and Jesus is not allegorical. Uh, Aslan isn't an allegory of Jesus. Aslan is Jesus, right? right? It's Jesus in an, I mean, it's, 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 it's a supposal, right? If, you know, if the son of God were to manifest in another world, how much, you know, if there were to be mm. other worlds and the son of God were manifested there, what might that be like? How might he interact with that world? Um, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's very, very important. Like, yeah. I mean, in later you works, know, he's pretty overt about that, right? Very overt about that. Exactly. You should get to know me by another name. So yeah, he's not, right. he's not an allegory of Jesus. He's Jesus, right? I mean, like that's, he's more, that's of, a, just... he's more of a figural reading this. I've heard C.S. Yes. describes a figural reader. Uh, so yeah. yeah, he literally, yeah. you know, it is Jesus. In this it is Jesus. World. It's not an allegory. So yeah, anyway, but, so, so, but, but as I say, whenever I say it's not an allegory, uh, I, I've almost always, I can see it like in the eyes of Christians that I'm talking to, they think I'm attacking the right. Christian. I'm like, no, 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 don't misunderstand. It's stronger than that. Actually. It's not, it's not, it's not, but anyway, so back to Tolkien, Tolkien's biggest problem was he, he was not comfortable being a Christian teacher. Mm. And I mean, part of this is the Catholic thing. And that's, that is definitely a big part of this. You know, it was sort of part of his culture as a Catholic, right? That like, you, that this is, this is the priest's job, right? Like I'm a layman. It's not my job to teach doctrine, um, you know? And he's looking at Lewis and he's like, and who are you exactly? <laughs> who are you, Mr. Adult Convert, whom I remember as an atheist a few years back, you right. know? And like, now you're gonna teach everybody. Maybe you should leave this to the professionals. I don't know. But like, you know, um, he was, Tolkien was just not comfortable with that. And of course, Lewis's response was, as soon as the professionals start doing it, I'll leave it to them. Right? <laughs> but since they're not, somebody, uh, somebody need to. And also, again, as I say, it's also just a difference in temperament. Um, uh, 
That does make, did, that does um, make a lot of sense, though. I yeah. that really that pieces yeah. together. I, I'm I'm very interested by that. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, I did um, one of the first courses I ever did actually at uh, Signum. I taught was in our graduate program was my Lewis and Tolkien class, mm-hmm. where I really kind of went through Lewis and Tolkien, and I and I, I took. Um, I didn't do it wasn't like a normal sort of survey where I just like read their major works or something. What I did was I, I took uh, pairs of works in which they're doing similar kinds of things. Um, uh, from a literary perspective, like they're doing. Um, so like, for instance, I read The Hobbit and The Wine, the Witch and the Wardrobe back to back, both like juvenile fairy tales involving, you know, the movement from like a normal mundane world into a world of adventure and back, right? You can see that same pattern in both of them. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's look at these and, you know, compare and contrast how they approach that particular topic. Um, we did, um, uh, anyway, there's, 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 there's a, a, a bunch of pairings uh, that we, mm-hmm. that we did uh, in these respects. And the conclusion that I really felt compelled to at the end of that study was, at the end of the day, Tolkien is a poet, Lewis is a teacher, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, he can't help himself. Lewis is a teacher. Like, it's, um, it doesn't just mean that he's like, it wasn't just that he had like these particular, like, doctrinal points that he really wanted to get out there. Um, he, like, he's a teacher. It is in his bones. He can't help himself. Like he's always mm. thinking through. And, and so his, his fiction, even his greatest fiction is still involved. There's, there's still a, there's still teaching that's happening there. Whereas Tolkien is perfectly comfortable. Unlike Lewis, Tolkien is perfectly comfortable just leaving something there and mm. not emphasizing it all. I mean, people, thousands, millions of people have read the Lord of the Rings without the faintest suspicion that it is a Christian work. Um, yeah. yeah. I had that experience myself. The first time I read uh, The Lord of the Rings, I was a teenager who wasn't really serious about his faith. Um, but then I, I came back to to God and made a serious commitment as a young adult and read it again. And I was like, suddenly it, the, you know, the curtain was pulled back and I'm like, you know, Jesus is all over this, you know, like there's so much, so much of God and so much of the, the gospel and such. And and I, and I and it, for 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 Christian standpoint, like for for many Christians who you know read the Lord of the Rings or or you know uh, hear about the Lord of the Rings or whatever, um, a, a lot of Christians have been spoiled by Lewis, mm. right? Because mm. you know they read the, they they read the Chronicles of Narnia and they're like, okay, now that's Christian literature. <laughs> All right, that's what I'm talking about, right? And then they read the Lord of the Rings and they're like, is this actually Christian? I don't really know. <laughs> and um, you know, it's it's almost as if like, well, in order for Christian to be like a for Tolkien to be a real Christian author, right? Then he's got to have like, he's got to have a message, right? He's got to have a message and he, he doesn't, he's not pushing a message. Um, he's really, he really is to a very great, just leaving the story out there and letting it do its work, whatever that work may, may be. Um, and he's willing to just sort of let that go. It's not in his hands. Like that's not his job and that's not how he thinks about it. So then when you talk about, because if he's, so he's less didactic clearly than Mm -hmm. than what Lewis Mm -hmm. is doing, but you do talk about, he has a goal though with this mythology, right? I mean, he has a sort of sense in where he wants it to do something, right? I mean, yes. Uh, Well, See, I don't know. It's hard. Or is aim, it just the, is aim, it the beauty aim is of a hard word. storytelling? Okay. Yeah. Sort of. Okay. 
let's go back to myth because I think okay. myth will get us back there again. Okay. Um, uh, cause I, I said, I didn't want to leave mythology behind, but then I did. Um, so <laughs> mythology, uh, the biggest thing that modern people have to get over, uh, the biggest obstacle to get over, like if you as a modern reader want to understand anything of what Lewis and Tolkien meant by myth, or to say the same thing, what myth meant to Lewis and Tolkien, you have to get over one really simple thing. The word mythology has changed, has developed over the course of the last hundred years, especially the last 75 years. The word myth has come first and foremost to me. Like if you call something a myth, what are you saying about it? It's Number one, true. it's false. Exactly. False. Right. Falsehood is the idea of falsehood. That is now the premier. And in some cases, the only concept that's connected with the word. There are a lot of people who use the word myth merely to mean that's wrong or that's yeah. false. Right. And fact. so they're, yeah, yeah exactly. Myth versus fact. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, like the whole Mythbusters concept, yeah, right, of exactly. mythology, um, urban myth, all that kind of thing. And so if you don't detach that idea at all, right, I mean, if, if, if falsehood is central to your idea of what the word myth means, you're never going to understand. Um, because the word myth to Lewis and Tolkien means something close to opposite of that. Yeah. Um, a myth is something that is true, like transcendently true, mm. beyond the details of the story. Like it, it is a, a myth is a, a story that points to truth, like capital T truth, mm. um, in ways often that the people who hear the myth and even the people who make the mythic stories don't themselves fully understand. It is a way of communicating the incommunicable and the incommunicable that is communicated is truth. Like it is, mm -hmm. it is like myth is the way, um, again, this is now I'm getting into more of the way that Lewis would talk about this than the way that Tolkien would talk about this. But um, if, you know, if God is the father of lights, right? And all, you know, and all people at all times have had some degree of truth, you know, mediated to them by the spirit. If, you know, in as much as all, um, you know, all, all of creation um, bears witness to the creator and, you know, nobody has been born who has no glimmer of truth, you know, no idea of ultimate reality. And I mean, there's some, at least, you know, uh, mediated, limited understanding of the, you know, this is Ro Romans one stuff, right? Um, um, you know, that God has revealed all these things to his creatures and through his creation. In as much as everybody has some sense of that, mm -hmm. the way they articulate that, the way they try to approach that is through myth through mythology by right. telling stories. And so you can see this in, you know, can see that you can see this in varying degrees in what we call mythology, like what we use that word for, that is the, uh, the ancient stories uh, of, you know, these different uh, people, some of the stories being religious stories, some of them not necessarily religious stories in a, in a way that, I mean, something like um, uh, the Iliad, for instance, not a religious story exactly, but a mythic story, a mythological story um and in these things we can see like you can see again to, to varying degrees and in varying different ways there's 
there is something real, with something about God, about the human condition, about the way the world works. Um, there is something that you can learn, even as a Christian, something you can learn mm. about what it means to be human by reading the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, for instance. This is the, the example that Lewis gave uh, in his book, An Experiment in Criticism, when he was talking about myth. Um, and by the way, if there were one short thing um, that I would urge people to, if you want like the, 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 the most like Cliff's Notesy version of the Lewis and Tolkien approach to mythology, it's the chapter on myth in Lewis's experiment uh, in criticism. Experiment in criticism was written at the end of, you know, it was one of the last things he wrote. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was the last, like a literary critical thing that he wrote. And uh, he wrote a chapter on myth. Uh, and he, there he lays out like the definition of mythology, what it is and why it's important more like succinctly and clearly than anywhere else that I know of in either one of their works. Um, but, uh, and I don't wanna, you, you can never, sloppily assume that Tolkien and Lewis thought the same way about things, even about things like myth that they, you know, that meant a lot to them both and they talked about together. But, um, <clears throat> but anyway, well, uh, yeah. If I could yeah. jump in there, I think I, sure, I, sure. you said so much of that's, that's great there. And I think this is what, you know, we've been trying to hit on this a little bit too, in the sense that, like I said, I think so many Christians are wary of that word mythology, but in the way that you yes. defined it, we see that it's integral even to our understanding of, of the Bible and stuff. Um, Absolutely. With Tolkien and Lewis, what I find interesting is that they they really seem at ease with borrowing from extra biblical yes. sources, pagan sources, Absolutely. learning about Absolutely. things. You know, there's a deep natural theology, it seems, within Tolkien. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about their, you know, why was that okay to them? Because also you see a lot of Christians who are wary of this sort of stuff. I mean, it's like the same with Harry Potter. They're like, I don't want my kids yes. reading something with wizards and goblins and orcs, right? Yeah, um, I, I grew up in the, the age of the satanic panic. So I know all about yeah. that. When I was a teenager, yeah. you're reading the Lord of the Rings. You're going I, straight to H-E double hockey stick. I was able to bypass yeah. that. But yes, that is a common story. Yeah. Collins narrative. That, that's a way of Ben saying I'm old. <laughs> yeah. yeah no i hear that i hear that yeah yeah i mean i it's true i can barely even wrap my head around somebody who is too young for the harry potter phenomenon but hey like it's <clears throat> what, what can i say uh we're old i guess colin but anyway yeah no but but i agree like that's um yeah and boy i fought so hard back in those days like i, I was i was fighting like a desperate rear guard action i tried at first to like argue i'm like guys like i'm not a the biggest harry potter fan in the world but this is you're not doing this right like this is you're just you're you're barking up the wrong tree here um uh however i swiftly just began like a desperate rear guard action to try to defend tolkien from getting thrown onto the bonfires along with harry potter uh i'm like okay i don't think i can i don't think i can save harry potter and i don't think i want to die on that hill anyway but um but but tolkien yes like you know here here i here i stand on the bridge of casa doom and i am not giving this up uh so um uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I used to have a lot of those discussions back in the day. Um, but yes, so as far as the pagan mythology, again, this is um, because they began with this understanding of, and, and again, uh, let's take Lewis, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Lewis is very open. Um, and you can read about this um, most powerfully, I think, in Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, mm -hmm. right? Um, where you can see, and he's very 
clear on the ways in which what he perceived in mythology, like what Norse mythology meant to him growing up, like the, the way in which his path to God came, not despite, you know, but through uh, uh, pagan mythology. Now, that's not to say, and he would not be the one to say, that's how you do it, right? So the first <laughs> step is let's teach everybody Norse mythology and it'll lead everybody obviously directly to God. Like that's, the, you know, that's, it's, not, it's not a recommendation in that way. But since he came from that, like that was his whole experience. He first perceived, you know, these you know, these things about God, this, this, you know, he first had these experiences through Norse mythology. And so there was no way else that he could possibly understand it. There was no way that he was going to go into writing being like, well, I got to be careful talking about Norse mythology because maybe it will lead people to Satan. Like he knew, um, you know, what it could do. And having tasted that himself, um, he came to it with this principle that, you know, every, Everybody who's talking about God, they're doing it because they have some perception of God. Again, it's the it's the Romans one principle, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you start, if you start from there and move forward, rather than saying, um, what, you know, this isn't a hundred percent right, and therefore could lead to error, you know, could could get people to or could you know even in the worst case lead people to worshiping worshiping false gods or have like vastly wrong ideas about God. He was less concerned in that way about like doctrinal purity and more about saying, let us let us perceive and understand the ways in which because even the Vikings had an experience of God, right? And how 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 can we see that? What can we, and what can we learn from that? Because mm -hmm. that's the other thing is that even from non-Christian cultures, what they're perceiving is, they're perceiving God and then they're mediating it. And then you can see, and yes, of course, it's going to be corrupted and twisted in various ways, right? It's not, um, it's not, you know, the undiluted truth of God uh, mm -hmm. that you're getting through them, but that doesn't mean that they're not perceiving things of God, and that even there are things we can learn from them. You know, there might be some things about God that they perceive more clearly than we do, because they're different. And he was, Lewis was throughout his life, a very big proponent of uh, reading old books. Uh, it's a, a Lewis essay I love to recommend on the reading of old books. Um, yeah. You know, that uh, you can, um, you know, you you avoid becoming narrow-minded and parochial by traveling around, right? You know, you, it's, if, you, if you never travel anywhere and you only ever like meet one set group of people and spend your whole life in one place with one group of people, you're gonna have a, a, a narrow view. Like there's gonna be lots of things that you will have never considered and, and lots of perspectives that you will have never seen. Well, through books, we can travel in time, right? We can expose ourselves in time and people who only like watch the news, right? And pay attention to what is happening right now um, can be fruitfully refreshed in your perspective about lots of things, including like there are ways in which we as Christians can have our own assumptions about, you know, God and what God has for us kind of calcified and influenced in ways that we don't even, we're not even aware of mm. by the non-Christian culture around us, right? And so reading other Christian works from 
earlier time periods, right? From other times, you know, as he said, the books of the future are not accessible to us, so we must content ourselves with the books of the past, right? Um, you know, it, it helps to refresh our perspective. And this is true even of non-Christian works, can also refresh our perspectives in some way. There, there are things that we can learn. There are things that we can see. Even, even when what we're seeing is like them answering a question or asking a question they don't have the answer to. Right. Uh, and, and, and we might see that, right. We, you know, as, as eventually Lewis came to see, you know, that, um, that Jesus was the answer that, um, you know, uh, that Norse mythology was asking in a lot of ways, you know, that there was, uh, there was, uh, uh, there were a lot of ways in which it was pointing in particular, he talks about, you know, the myth of, of the God Balder, the dying and rising God Balder, uh, and the grief for the death of, of, of the God Balder. Um, and it was through that lens that he came to the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that, uh, you know, the way in which he was able to just, again, see so clearly his own experience taught him that, um, yes, like these other, these other ideas, these other mythologies um, are, you know, they're, 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 they're groping at it, right? <laughs> you know, they were, they were, they were seeing stuff but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And the fact that, we, that you know, that, that we have that revelation, right, um, enables us, it doesn't excuse us from having to read it all like, well, so now why should I bother with the groping, right? Why should I bother with Norse mythology or whatever, or, or, or whatever, because I, um, now I know the real story, right? Um, but instead, you can be amazingly enriched by going back to it from that perspective. And they clearly were. And so in their own writings, you know, they are, um, there is much of the, the mythic power of those old stories that they, that they use, that they incorporate, that they invoke themselves, um, though both of them are invoking it. I keep talking about Norse because that's the mythology that the two of them yes, most yeah. had in common. I mean, that was really kind of like the premise of their whole friendship, basically. They became friends <laughs> because they were both into Norse mythology. Like that's, um, uh, they, uh, Tolkien taught Lewis Old Norse. Oh, right. Um, uh, he, he, uh, he started, Tolkien started a, um, a group. Um, uh, Tolkien wasn't a, 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 an innate teacher like Lewis, but he was, uh, he was really into like uh, uh, small groups. <laughs> like he loved like getting together in small groups of friends for stuff. So he started this, um, uh, this group called the coal biters, um, meaning that like you huddle so close to the fire, it's like mm -hmm. you're biting the coals. And uh, so like they all gather around the fire um, and they would just read Old Norse allowed and like he just kind of like walked them through it these are people who didn't know old norse at all and he's like let's get together and read old norse poetry and you'll pick it up right um and that's how lewis learned to read old norse from tolkien at the coal biters so um anyway so yeah, the norse i keep coming back to norse because it's what they most had in common though both of them knew greco-roman stuff very very well um people yeah, both of often them underestimate well that with tolkien but yeah 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 uh, but um, but anyway, the Norse was what they loved, both what they loved most. So anyway, that's why I keep using that as an example. But um, but in both of them, you can see them, um, their own stories, the 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 kind of Christian myths, and mm -hmm. talk about phrases that make Christians uncomfortable. Christian mythology, oh man, like <laughs> yeah. the looks I get yeah, if I utter that phrase, right? But again, all that means is that Christian stories also have this mythic power. 
right? right. Um, and the difference, and this this is you know a thing that Tolkien told Lewis during the process of his conversion. Um, that uh, you know, this is one of the conversations that Lewis and Tolkien had. That was really part of Lewis's conversion process. Um, was that um, in Christianity, and in Christianity alone, myth became fact. Yeah. Right. It's like the only. It, it is a myth. Like the story of the of the incarnation and resurrection is the most powerful myth ever told. Right. And yes. the difference is it happened. Like it is also history. Unlike Balder, right? Unlike Osiris, unlike you know the other dying and and, and unlike, unlike the other myths of the, you know the Corn King and the you know the dying and rising God whose death brings about the blessing of the crops and everything else that you get in so many different religions, um, in this one time, it as uh, as as Lewis says, it seems to have actually happened, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, and, uh, and and again, which is which is what showed, which is what what helped Lewis to see, yes, this is not only a myth, this is the myth that's yeah, exactly. behind. It doesn't it doesn't negate the mythology. It actually elevates yeah. it. It brings it into a exactly. Whole, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And helps and 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 helps to understand get things like that I mean like the Bible is full. I mean, goodness, the first 11 chapters of Genesis Absolutely. are some of the most powerfully mythic stories ever mm. told. I mean, the story mm -hmm. of the flood, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of the Tower of Babel, like all that stuff is just incredibly powerful uh, mythology. Um, but again, so but, but that first step, you've got to divorce myth and falsehood mm -hmm. in your head. Mm -hmm. If you can separate those, uh, you know, so that myth doesn't mean falsehood, then you can begin being a little bit more comfortable talking in this way. And I, it's it helps. It really helps. I think a lot to to get there. Certainly, yeah. And it's that mythic quality I think that makes it bottomless, right? I mean, it makes yes. it something that you can continuously revisit and get more and more out of it every time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that's, it's not only the, yeah, like that's the, the style, especially of those stories. I mean, there are certainly, mm -hmm. there are other stories that um, like other Old Testament stories that have great mythic power to them as well. And by great mythic, I mean, these are stories that even people who didn't believe it at all, right, right. would find interesting and moving in the same way that we can find Greek myths or Norse myths really moving. Mm -hmm. um, there are many, you know, Greek myths that I find deeply stirring uh, um, stories, you know, that do really seem to touch something. And again, I think even people who did not believe anything at all about the Bible would still find the stories, uh, like the story of the sacrifice of Isaac or the story mm -hmm. of the, uh, you know, like the, 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 the uh, falling of the walls of Jericho, right? There are lots of stories like that, which, uh, you know, David and Goliath, good grief, right? Um, uh, as, I mean, you can see how powerfully mythic that story is just from the fact that people make reference to it every single year during the NCAA tournament. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, like you can't have, it's like a law. You can't go through the, the NCAA tournament without making allusions to David and Goliath. Um, uh, but anyway, um, like it's, I guess so there are these powerful mythic stories, but like those first stories, chapters one through 11 of Genesis, like those are like the style of mythology, right? I mean, they are told that it's like, th this is, this is, those are really, really powerful mythic stories, which again, like 
you can have a different relationship to. Again, it's 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 not you detach myth from falsehood, right? It's nothing about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but those stories are so obviously even different from like Jericho or David and Goliath or uh, Abraham and Isaac, right? Like the story of the Tower of Babel, the story of the Garden of Eden. Um, it is designed to be like suggestive, right? It is designed to evoke um, ideas, feelings. Uh, uh, I mean, it points to truth, but it points to truth in the way that mythology points to truth. You know, it's not like a story that has a moral, right? It's not, or like a story that can be applied to our lives in some ways. It is, I mean, it is that, but it's more than that, right? It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not within the same kind of context. Anyway, so yeah, once you get, once you can kind of get this concept of myth the way that the way that it meant to them, I find it it, it becomes really helpful in uh, in it's 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 really Lewis and Tolkien have had a big impact in this way I think on my own Bible reading actually you know yeah, for this fantastic. for this reason. Mm-hmm. One of, one of the things I'm also interested in is the our our Christian themes and narratives that appear in Tolkien. And it's interesting yes. to kind of contrast him with Lewis in this way. Like we were saying, you know, Lewis a little bit more didactic, obviously kind of teaching, but the, the kind of sense that you get from reading any of their fiction um, that, you know, the nature of good and evil and mm-hmm. the battle mm-hmm. that goes on there is something I've always found quite interesting that there's a clear sense, I think for both Lewis and Tolkien, that um, it is up to us to, to fight the powers of evil, um, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. you know, we are kind of called on that to, you know, that that's for us to do. And um, one of the contrasts that I've seen, I'm just curious what you think of this, is that you tend to find in Lewis this. There's a sort of overarching sense that evil is kind of lurking everywhere, uh, that mm-hmm. it's pervasive and that it sort of taints everything and whatever. Whereas when Tolkien, it seems like the reverse emphasis, not to say that they both don't do a little bit of both, but, but that Tolkien yeah. is really, he doesn't seem to bring evil front and center all the time. It's actually sort of, I've, I've heard somebody describe this as, you know, the, the, you know, you talk about Gandalf and the battle with the Balrog. It actually doesn't mm-hmm. get a whole lot of description in Lord no. of the Rings. He doesn't no. really, and for him, it's more about pervasive good um, what do you think of that theme? Is that a fair contrast there? Is that something you find in Tolkien as a, as a theme? So sort of, yes. Yeah. Well, yes. And no, on the one hand. Yeah. I think it's a perfectly fair reading of the Lord of the Rings, um, yeah. that Tolkien, uh, is that, like, as you, you were talking about the less emphasis on, um, the sort of pervasiveness of evil, right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like evil kind of changing everything. Um, I think that that's, that is true in the mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. What we see in the Lord of the Rings, um, which has led to a lot of misunderstanding, actually, um, among, well, especially among people who don't actually read it very carefully and don't really want to read it very much, um, uh, he tends to externalize it, right? So um, we have localized evil, in a sense, Right, like in Sauron and the orcs, right? There's, there's, there's the Dark Lord, and there are the, and the orcs are are like completely evil, sort of quasi constructs, right? So they're these are not like redeemable souls. Footnote: This is a major issue. This is the biggest issue. This is the biggest 
problem in Middle Earth is mm-hmm. orcs, where they come from, and uh, uh, and like what is their ultimate like spiritual destiny. Uh, Tolkien never solved this problem. This is a this is a it, it's a fundamental theological crisis <laughs> that Tolkien has <laughs> later on trying to figure out and explain orcs, and he never actually fully did it uh, before he died. But anyway, end footnote. So Tolkien mm. externalizes evil, right? And so we we get these like forces. So so you do have in Gandalf and the Balrog, in the whole struggle against Sauron, in um, battles against the orcs, right? The advantage that he gains in the storytelling by the orcs right the orcs were they create theological problems but you can see why like it was worth it to create the theological problems because what you get is um you get enemies that are okay to fight like evil concrete evil tangible evil that it's okay to fight like it's okay to fight and to kill because they're just evil. We get a glimpse of this once. Lewis points to this once in Perelandra, if you mm-hmm. remember the passage in Perelandra, where Ransom realizes when he's fighting against the unman, right? He sort of realizes, I'm fighting against the devil here. And he, re- and he hates him, right? And right. He, he hates, and, there's, and he has that, he describes this liberating moment, right? When he finally realizes what hatred is for, like he'd always his whole life, um, Ransom, the main character, he said he's always his whole life, he had always felt hatred to be wrong on some level, right? And he'd never really like understood it. Like what, is hatred merely sin, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like, it's, it, you know, hatred is, is never okay because there had always been a problem about the sin and the sinner, right? It's okay right. to hate the sin, but you can, but you can, you can, you can't ever hate anybody because that's wrong, right? But then when he real when it's like the principle of evil itself that he's fighting, right? He's like and it's righteous, yeah. This is this is hatred. Like this is mm. what I can, you know, he's like, this is what hatred is for. Like, this is why we have it. This is the this is the pure virtuous hatred of which all other hatreds are a are a corruption, right? Mm. You know, and he has this like liberating moment where he realizes the purpose of hatred. Um, we get that in Tolkien. Right. Mm-hmm. Except we get that everywhere in Tolkien. It's like a big part of the landscape of Tolkien's work. Um, it's okay. Um, it's good to resist the orcs and hate the orcs and resist the Balrog. Like there's no, there's nothing wrong about uh, about fighting them, about standing up to them. So Tolkien externalizes the evil in this way, and I think that's that might be one of the things that you were talking that you're sort of perceiving there when you're talking about with Tolkien, it's, it's not as much kind of um, not diluted, but sort of dispersed uh, through everything. It's more sort of centralized. Now the error Mm. that this, that I mentioned before that this has led many people to is the idea that Tolkien's world and uh, more specifically, his characters are really simplistic and all very black and white. It's true. There are completely black characters, um, Mm. but there are almost no completely white characters. Um, Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, I just recently came across, again, Lewis's, um, I just I, I just actually yesterday finished rereading uh, Lewis's essay, the, the um, so grateful for the complete collection of Lewis's uh, short works, 
put out on audiobook several years back. That was so huge. Yeah, I just love that collection. Anyway, so I just finished rereading all of C.S. Lewis's essays again. And oh, uh, included in that are, yeah. are the two reviews that he wrote of The Lord of the Rings um, when the Fellowship oh. of the Ring and then when The Two Towers came out. Um, and in his review of The Two Towers, C.S. Lewis talks about this explicitly. Um, he says, okay, we can now put to bed forever um, the silly reading that so many people, the silly criticism that so many people have given of the Lord of the Rings, that all of his characters are simplistic and black and white. Mm -hmm. Though he says how anyone could have ever maintained that argument when the culminating event of the return of the king, or sorry, of the Fellowship of the Ring was like the internal uh, struggle and temptation to evil and then eventual redemption of Boromir, right? Like, you know, how you can read that and come away with saying all of his characters are either completely good or completely evil. Like, it's mm -hmm. just, um, yeah, like, well, if you ignore Boromir and Saruman and Frodo and Gollum and everybody in the book, yeah. then yeah, it's true. Because um, that's a definite anyway, theme, right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tolkien. In fact, the Lord of the Rings does a better job than most. I mean, it, one of the things it does really, really well is really show you—not just tell you, but show you how the path can be walked. Right? How you can set out mm. wanting to do the good, the right thing, with good intentions, and end up going down the path of evil. Like. Mm -hmm. right that's a really subtle thing and Tolkien does it really well showing it um, in lots of different stages and lots of people going different ways and some turning back and some not turning back right I mean looking at I mean goodness even if you just think of the Gondorian stewardly royal family right Boromir mm -hmm. and Faramir and Denethor right and the three of them show like different stages of that right they all have the same kind of temptation right faramir does best denethor does worst boromir's in the middle right but all three of them you can see all three of them are great people with great intentions right but they all um uh you know and, and they all come out there anyway so as i say it's i, I get irritated I by and, and even gandalf and galadriel two of the most good characters both when they're offered the ring are tempted by it, but say, no, <laughs> yes. I can't. Yes. Not, not that they're so good that they're above it, but that they're so good that they're like, I know that that's a weakness. So I'm saying no to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially Galadriel, right? Especially Galadriel, you know, when, when Frodo offers her the ring and she's like, funny, you should offer me that because I've been trying <laughs> to resist this temptation ever since you walked into these, these woods, right? Uh, and so now it comes to it, yeah, okay, I'm going to resist temptation. But she then, in that famous speech, which uh, uh, um, Peter Jackson made so psychedelic, um, you know, that, you know, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen, right? That, that speech, um, you know, she, she shows like, Oh, I've thought about it. Like, you know, I have wrestled with this and I have seen this is what lies at the end of that road. Right. Um, but she only knows that because she's thought about it. Right. And she's really, you know, and it, and it, um, it came to use her own phrase to the edge of a knife, um, uh, you know, whether she would stand or fall. Um, and she stood. So that was good, but she's not simple. Um, anyway, but one last thing that I want to add um, is that I said that what you were saying about um, evil being sort of less dispersed in that way um, 
or distributed. I'm not sure exactly the right verb to use. But anyway, um, right. I said that, that I do think that that's a good reading of The Lord of the Rings. But there's an interesting fact. And that is, if you go back further, if mm-hmm. you go back to the Silmarillion and his fundamental mythology, um, Tolkien actually talks about the the corruption of all, like the dis- the disperse the dispersion of evil into all things even more explicitly than Lewis mm-hmm. ever does. Oh, um, you know, this is uh, uh, the whole idea of so Arda is his word for like the solar system, like the world. Basically, mm-hmm. the world is Arda, um, and he talks about you know Arda marred. Right, Arda has been marred. Like this is what like the you know original sin, the 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 you know the the creation which you know groans for release, moving from Romans one to Romans eight now. Right, um, right. Uh, that concept is as a core concept of his mythology. Like his mythology is the mythology of a world that was created good by God, and through the um, the the mediation through the 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 subcreative abilities of created beings, right? So it's God working mm. in in harmony with the free will of the creatures that He has created in order to create the history of this world, which He intends to be good and is going to be good no matter what happens, right. but which becomes corrupted, which becomes you know, and discord is brought into that. The mu- in, in, in discord is brought into the music, um, and. You know the Satan figure, Melkor. Um, Sauron is not the Satan figure. Sa- uh, you know, S- uh, Sauron was the junior partner of the Satan figure. Um, mm. uh, uh, you know, Sauron is like what would happen if uh, you know, like one of one of Satan's you know junior lieutenants, you know, sets up for himself and becomes reasonably uh, successful. You know, uh, you know, in the world, like that's that's what that's who Sauron is. He's just one of the Wormwood demons, basically. Yeah, exactly. Right. If if, if Wormwood made it big for a while, uh, he would be Sauron. Exactly. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So uh, so he so so that idea of like that 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 the world is the world has been marred. But um, and there's that wonderful speech that that God that Iluvatar Eru the One um, mm-hmm. gives uh, to the Ainur. This is all from the Ainulindale, the very first section of the Silmarillion. Uh, the Ainulindale, which means the music of the Ainur, the Holy Ones, the mm-hmm. uh, angelic host, um, which is essentially Tolkien's myth of creation. Um, and um, at the end of you know, so the. Satan figure has been rebelling, right? He's gone into rebellion and he's trying to set up and to elevate his part in the music and make it more prominent and then to take over and guide the themes and and determine the music and everything. He's doing all that. Um, And then at the end, Iluvatar says, none of you can alter the music in my despite. Like, you know, what you have done is going to redound to my glory and the goodness like all that you have done all the evil that you have intended all of the ways in which you have tried to influence is going to but increase the glory of the whole right um uh and uh you know and you'll see like you'll see that will happen right but uh, but again Tolkien is so Tolkien is really, really firm on the idea of providence. Like God is, you know, that things are not out of control. Like things mm-hmm. might seem disordered, right? Things are are evil and out of control and sin is rampant in the world, but that doesn't mean it's out of God's control or that God's purposes are being thwarted. Right. And and Tolkien is really clear on that 
sort of doctrinal point. But at the same time, um, he does not lose sight of the fact that it, um, to quote uh, Menway, the uh, chief of the Valar, the chief of the good guys uh, ruling over the world, the powers ruling over the world. Um, well, he talks about this and then it's Mandos who says, and yet it remains evil. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's, it, right. it, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't change the fact that the world is indeed corrupted and Arda has been marred. Um, and uh, uh, the elves talk about art. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. So I was just going to say, Corey, can you just speak uh, briefly to the influences uh, that Tolkien took in where he comes through with that? I, I mean, Boethius. Can you can you geek out with us a bit on on, on absolutely? It's uh it's actually it was really it's it's really funny because just last night, um, I've been talking about like the Boethius influence on Tolkien's thought for a long time, and I'm currently doing uh you know so when we're recording this, I'm in the middle of my Mythgard Academy discussion of the nature of Middle Earth, the new book that was just released edited by Carl Hostetter which contains like the first new uh Tolkien like Middle Earth content released to the general public in 20 years like it's the the other books that you know the Baron Luthien book the Fall of Gondolin book uh, all that stuff is is cool it's really awesome but we already had that it was it's all in the history of Middle Earth um it's been repackaged and excellently right and so a lot of people are reading it for the first time which is cool but we knew it already right this has stuff that Tolkien wrote um, that has either never ever seen the light of day uh, yet, or has only been published in in some pretty obscure places that only scholars have seen. So uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm going through this, right? And I just got to the fate and free will uh, uh, chapter last night. I'm making notes for tonight's class. I don't think we're ever going to get to it. We'll probably get to it next week. But um, uh, but anyway, there are several passages where where I was like, oh man, like. Uh, <laughs> I've been looking at the Boethius influence and it was, but it was kind of under the surface, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when he talks about it explicitly, I'm like, oh, there it is. It's right there. Like, oh, this is so good. So anyway, yeah. It's awesome. Maybe for the, just because you've just made that point, I do think it's interesting, this whole thing about providence and also the ideas of free will and predestination. But for our, for people who are listening, Boethius might not be a figure. Boethius. I don't think I'll, yeah, uh, yeah. Are, are I'll, familiar I'll explain. With. Yeah. So Boethius uh, is the guy who wrote the Consolation of Philosophy, which most people don't realize, but the Consolation of Philosophy is like one of the top five most influential books in the Western world, basically. I mean, it was, uh, it was pro probably top three most influential uh, Christian works um, with, with counting the Bible as number one, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> sure. number three for it's a thousand there. years. I mean, yeah. it's like everybody read the Consolation of Philosophy, um, and I cannot recommend it enough. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's an awesome, awesome book. Um, and it's particularly interesting, by the way, um, in that he seems to have undertaken this, um, and I, even a lot of modern Christians who have read Boethius will sometimes get a wrong impression about it because basically right. he sort of sets out to, um, for, is written in prison. So he was in prison. Uh, he was in prison and actually was indeed, well, he was in exile, not exactly in prison. He was in exile. He was like on a exile on a Mediterranean Island, right? Um, uh, Cause he was like fourth century, late, late Roman empire stuff. 
post Roman Empire, actually, like uh, 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 under Gothic kings. But anyway, um, so he, he's a late Roman um, and was in exile. He had like gone into political, he'd like been framed and like destroyed, politically destroyed by his enemies and exiled and lost everything and, uh, and uh, was feeling understandably sorry for himself in prison. Um, and then he writes this dialogue, which is a which is a dialogue between himself and Lady Philosophy, who is like the allegorical figure representing wisdom. Um, and uh, he is, you know, complaining like, and essentially his complaint is like, what gives? Like, I've been a good person. I've tried to be a good person. And this is what I get. Like, how does this make sense? How does this work? So he's confronting first and foremost, the question of like, why do bad things happen to good people, especially me? And, um, and then, you know, he gets around to the question of uh, for you know God's foreknowledge and predestination and free will. Um, how can there be free will if you know God knows what's going to happen and everything? And he gives the best and most satisfying answer to that question that has never been given in Western tradition. Um, the Cliff's Notes version of the answer is: God is not in time. Like we are not. God is not. God is not in time. And if you think through the implications of God not being restricted in time in the same way that we are, it will really change your perspective about mm -hmm. God's foreknowledge. And there is no predestination. There's just destination. Predestination implies that God is in time. He's not yeah. in time. He doesn't no predestine things. He just <laughs> yeah. destines things. He doesn't foreknow things. He just knows them um, uh, because he's seeing all these things all at once. The whole history of the universe spread out before him. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, but um, so, uh, but, but, but Boethius's approach is he doesn't quote the Bible. Like I, I, he, yes. uh, there are a couple yeah. places where he tangentially quotes the Bible, uh, sort of paraphrases the Bible, but he doesn't go to it for authority. He basically tries to show how even pagan philosophy itself, like Aristotle and Plato, if you just like work with nothing other than Aristotle and Plato, even that, even there, you can still get to these ideas like they, they show you don't have to just accept you know it's not it's not just a question his answer to his you know own spiritual dilemma is not merely adhere to the teachings of scripture right but even reason itself shows us that um you know that this that this makes sense you know that this is sound that this is mm -hmm. true uh and it's it's so powerful but anyway yeah so um Tolkien in uh, in many of his books, but I mean, in The Lord of the Rings, especially, I think that Tolkien's literary depiction, like the way that he dramatizes providence is, uh, and the relationship between God's plan and free will is some of the most uh, theologically subtle treatments of free will and 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 you know god's foreknowledge and god's plan god's providence um th that we see that i've seen anywhere i mean i don't know anybody who's treated that better um and again back to the differences between him and lewis right Lewis would talk about it. If it were him, Lewis would yeah. talk about it, yeah. right? Tolkien doesn't talk about it. You can, you can read the Lord of the Rings 15 times and not really pick up on the, uh, the, you know, the, the idea that he's interested in this and he's thinking about this. Um, and again, that's, that's the difference. Tolkien is willing to let that happen. Like he doesn't care if you get it or not. Right. In a sense, like he's not, he's not trying to teach it. Um, 
he's just embodying it and there it is right Mm-hmm. but um but you can see you can see even in the hobbit you can see it in my book on the hobbit i talked about this all the references to uh to bilbo's luck right which uh get repeated and repeated like gosh isn't he really lucky and then it you know comes back around to sort of showing how uh and gandalf in the final page pointing to how um you know these things were not just arranged for his benefit this, this was not just luck right there was a larger story being told he has played a part uh in this large story um but luck is not a talent that he has you know it's not about him in the end um this is he has been a part of a bigger story and he's played an important part in that the role of free will so like the the kind of glimpse that like yeah there was a bigger plan going on and that the actions that you took along the way were part of that big plan it turns out um is what we see in the hobbit in the lord of the rings we get a much stronger emphasis on free will itself um and the choices that you make and so this is where again i I got in the nature of middle earth it's he's not talking about the lord of the rings explicitly he's talking about elves and elvish free will but um uh, but he talks about uh, he talks about it explicitly the, the the ways in which these two things go together and the ways in which these things are brought together, and uh, and Kaladi's practically paraphrasing Book Five of Boethius. It was it's like uh, he doesn't use the same illustration, but it's everything but the he doesn't actually talk about like the treasure buried in the field from Book Five of Boethius, right. but it's like everything except that specific. Instead, he uses a Lord of the Rings illustration. Um, he talks about the chance meeting between. Uh, Gandalf and Thorin instead um but it's exactly the same principle that he's that he's explaining so um yeah I mean that's definitely one of the uh it's 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 definitely a book that influenced Tolkien a lot um but yeah he was um uh, you know Tolkien was um uh, I mean, he was he was he was a Catholic and he was strongly influenced by I mean uh, a lot of I mean very much traditional Catholic uh you know theology uh especially Aquinas Mm-hmm. is uh is manifested and 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 augustine too um i mentioned briefly the um uh the theological dilemma that the orcs became right um yeah. and the kind of um the kind of the the horns of the dilemma that tolkien was caught on is on the one hand he loved the idea of this externalized evil right the um the enemy that it's a joy uh a joy and a liberation to fight and even to kill, right? Um, you don't have to worry about, as you did with humans, right? As we see with Sam and mm. the uh, the Southron uh, warrior and so like the, like they they're people, right? Who might have been deceived, might not be evil at heart, right? Um, orcs, not so, right? Don't have that problem with orcs, and yet, so that's one thing. But on the other hand, after the Lord, the Lord of the Rings is when he really kind of sits down and theologically starts thinking through things. You might think a little late now, but anyway, he did. Uh, and w- when he does, he's, he, and you can see this came to him in the middle of writing Lord of the Rings. He was like, okay, evil cannot create. Evil can only corrupt. Like that's a really important, like Augustinian yeah, theological evil principle. Evil negation is big, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And mm-hmm. so he's like, yeah, I, because in his original, like you can read it back in the mythology he wrote in the 30s, the origin of orcs, like the old origin of orcs, which was still kind of existing in his mind. Like that was still the backstory of orcs when right. he began writing the Lord of the Rings was that they were, they were constructs. 
like yeah. Morgoth made them out of like slime and blood and he poured his own hatred into them and they so they were like automatons of evil basically is what orcs were um they were literally they were not creatures at all they were they were they were constructs right um and then he's like tolkien realized like you know no no they can't be that they can't be that they 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 do have independent action um this and evil can't make new creatures so right evil cannot be true yeah yeah and uh, honestly i think that when um so you may there's a scene in in the two towers when um one of the coolest scenes in the whole book when uh frodo and sam are on the stairs of carathungal and end up having both a theological discussion and a literary discussion it's uh, it's amazing um but um uh that's the the uh you know don't the old, old stories ever end conversation between frodo and sam um but sam is also asking about the orcs they're talking about their supplies and sam's a little worried about their supplies and he's talking about mordor across the mountains like climbing up the mountains and he's worrying about the other side and he says um well there must be food and drink there that we might be able to get right if we don't have enough right he's like or you know don't orcs eat and drink or do they just live on foul air and poison right and frodo answers him and says no they eat and drink mm -hmm. um evil does not have the power to create real new creatures of its own mm -hmm. um when Fro and i'm convinced when frodo said that that's when tolkien was like well, shoot. <laughs> like, I, I, I mean, this, this happened in Tolkien a lot. Like his characters would say something and he's like, well, now what am I going to do? <laughs> right? So yeah, like that's, that's the moment when like that theology became clear and he never backed down from it. Like that became the, the, the thing. And so he tried to square, but he didn't want to give up the other side. Like he didn't want to just make orcs put orcs into the human camp where they were like people you might need to have pity on and they might you know like mm -hmm. can they be redeemed like should we be trying to convert the orcs instead of just killing them right um he didn't want to go there like because the 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 you know the, that that kind of externalized presence of evil that representation within the story um and the multiple ways in which it's so applicable right to read this story where you're fighting against evil uh in the ways that they do right against the orcs against the balrog um that was so powerful and he loved that and and he saw the power of that and he didn't want to lose that he didn't want to just make orcs yet another essentially sort of subspecies of humans like another group of people that you have to separate the sin and the sinner with right he didn't want to have to go there but he tried to find a way around it it was really hard it was really complicated and he as I said, he never solved it but amazing i I want to be respectful of your time. We have been uh, yeah. chatting here for over an hour, but this has been just a phenomenal talk. I uh, hope that maybe in the future you will come back and we can question you again about some other themes that appear sure. in Tolkien. Sure. But that was an excellent exposition just of what mythology was in Tolkien and some some of the relational things between him and Lewis. So, uh, Professor Olson, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I appreciate so it so Absolutely. much. It was so interesting. No problem. Thank you for having me. I'd be happy to come back. It's always a pleasure. I there's um there's a sense in which um, 
uh, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to be mindful in my own broadcasts. Um, you know, we have a very varied audience and, and I have loved the conversations I've had with people, you know, many of whom are, are non-Christian or even anti-Christian mm-hmm. who um, are Tolkien fans and, and, and who have enjoyed the podcast and be, been part of our community. And I really value that. And I don't want to lose that. Um, so I'm always, I, I always try to be careful, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, you know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, back down about the stuff that's there and we're going to bring out right. the stuff that's there and I'm not going to be afraid to talk about it. But, but I do try to be, um, uh, you know, I, I just to not kind of beat the Christian drum really hard during my broadcast. So mm-hmm. uh, talking with you guys and your audience is, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, talking out of school. Like it's, it's, right it's really on. fun. Yeah. It's really fun to, to, to get to talk in a Christian context about some of the stuff that I just, um, I, you know, I don't get as much of a chance uh, uh, to talk about in my uh, in my normal broadcast so much. So, well, it's we a great appreciate pleasure, that. is what I'm saying to, uh, to 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 speak with you guys. Really glad uh, uh, that you had that opportunity. And like I said, we'll we'll have to get you back then so that we can talk about more of the Christian themes that appear in Tolkien. So-